Okay, so Jesus' identity is appealing because there's no final authority. He's just a guy, right? In contrast, what do we know about Christianity? It's divine. It's divine, right? What are some other appeals to, let's say, Jesus' identity? Why are some people kind of drawn to that? Probably easier to wrap your mind around. He okay. doesn't have the element of the mystery of the Trinity. Okay. Yeah, all the... The Trinity, divinity, how that all works is simpler. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Other thoughts? You can take what you like and leave what you don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can take what you like, leave what you don't, because he's dead. I mean, what's Jesus going to do? The Christianity side has the obedience to mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one of the big ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and why is there obedience associated with Christianity? Because he's God, right? He still lives. Okay? Other thoughts on the differences? Why is one? And with Christianity, it tells us that we're all sinners. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And people don't really want to consider that when they do things... They don't want to consider that the Bible is a guideline that Jesus left us. And when we fall short of that guideline, mm-hmm. we're sinners. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Because in Jesus Christianity, did Jesus ever sin? If no. you believe in Jesus' sanity, could you really say that? Mm. Could you really say that? Other thoughts? Of why one's appealing, why this is kind of like very fashionable today. Well, it's the rejection of organized religion, particularly as handed down through the ages. Mm-hmm. That it's Jesus' sanity would say that Christianity is actually a perversion of the true teachings of Jesus, mm-hmm. and it's a um, it's a construction of men built to keep them in power, mm-hmm. to hold people under their sway by fear. Yeah. All the creeds and doctrine, I mean, all that was added later. Mm-hmm. We need to get hell. back to the true Jesus. The idea of hell mm-hmm. is not part of Jesus' sanity at all. Yeah. Other thoughts on Jesus' sanity versus Christianity? These are good thoughts, by the way. Now, why would people even use Jesus' sanity, right? If they're kind of rejecting divine authority and religion and everything, you know, why... Why do they kind of attach Jesus to their religion? What do you think? Why, why would they still say, yeah, I, I still follow Jesus. Yeah. The following as man and man only. What was that? The following as man and man only. Man only, yeah. But why would they even attach Jesus to their Religion. Why would they still say I'm a Christian if they reject all this? Kind of validates what they feel like their religion is because everyone knows who Jesus is. So if you attach uh-huh. that name, like there's kind of the guilty by association. Yeah. So there's kind of a branding here, right? I'm not a pagan, right? Other thoughts about why they would still claim to be followers of Christ if they reject all this stuff? Be wrong, but because you're because I'm good, because I'm good, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so 
Jesus was a good person. Mm -hmm. Good person. Mm -hmm. Most respected leader in human history, right? I think there's an undeniable, like, moral beauty that everyone recognizes in some of the teachings of Jesus. Like, if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, mm -hmm. some of those things, right? Like, there is an undeniable moral beauty to the mm -hmm. idea of, um, you know, the, the blessing coming to those who are downtrodden. Mm -hmm. Or, um, you know, the, the overthrowing of oppression structures, mm -hmm. systems of oppression. Or um, even the idea of loving your enemy, which was an, a foreign ethic prior to Jesus coming into mm -hmm. the world. Yeah. And so there's, there's like an undeniable, like, what is yeah. good? Yeah. You cannot define it better than Jesus did. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Would you also say, like, not only the amount of resources you have, referring back to Jesus, but the vast amount and diverse resources relating back to Jesus, so they have so much to pick from, from different areas? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, I think, you know, I'm going to build on that in a second. I want to hear what you say, Chris. Go ahead. I love with like the idea of it, not I love the, the idea of it. Yeah, action of it. Yeah, <clears throat> one of my theories is most people who adopt Jesus sanity, they use that as kind of a way of attacking Christianity, right? So it's kind of like, how can we, how can this be devoured from, from the inside, right? The problem with Christians is they don't understand the true Jesus. And if we understand the true Jesus, this is where the pick and choosing comes on in, you know, kind of comes into play. If we understand the true Jesus, then we are going to reject Christianity and this authoritative, dogmatic religion that's really based off of, you know, speculations of an ancient church and ancient group of followers. Does that make sense? So they'll still pay respect to it, but often Jesus sanity, like the search for the historical Jesus, I mean, this is what you find in a college religion department not a Bible college, but a college religion department, is they are very intrigued and they're fascinated by Jesus, but they use this new information, as you brought up, to really attack Christianity. Does that make sense? And so, when people deny the divinity of Jesus Christ, they can call themselves Christians, right? But it's actually a very different religion, right? So this is kind of the, the continental divide well, one of them, I guess there's multiple ones, but you know, in, in Orthodox Christianity is what do you think about Jesus? And so what we're going to talk about today, we're going to kind of move to uh, page five, okay? And we talked about Jesus' sanity a little bit. Like, Jesus as a man is a very important doctrine, right? We've never, I mean, without him being man, there's no atonement. The resurrection is kind of like, well, what is that, right? Sent by God, but he's also God, and that's something that just kind of helps pull all these things um, together. So let's look at page five. And the issue that we're going to be addressing is there's a certain strain in the church that has marginalized the significance of the deity of Christ. According to them, it's more important to follow Jesus than to believe the right things about him. So what do you think about that? It's more important to follow him than to believe the right things about him. Daniel, you're about to say something profound. No, I'm uh, trying to think. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, you're thinking with the lips, I see. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's more important to follow Jesus than to believe the right things about him. 
How can you follow someone you don't know? Okay. You can follow someone you don't know. That's good. More important to follow him than to believe the right things about him. Could you, could you say that they might be in the section of wolves and sheep's clothing? They often, yeah, that's often the Because they believe, but they don't yeah. follow their right. Yeah. Uh, Chris? It's like they, these like core principles, if they're just following and not understanding, then they would be like, oh yeah, did you just come back to that? I don't know. Mm. They're like, oh, Trinity, I don't know. I'm just following. Yeah, or they'll say, does it really matter if there's a virgin birth? Would that change anything about how you view Jesus? Right? So that would be, yeah, that's part of the technique that they use. What else would you say? It's more important to follow him than to believe the right things about him. So many of the right things that we know about him are because like, that's what makes so much of Jesus a miracle. Is okay. Right? So okay. like, that's what gives us the things to follow. Okay. I mean, when Jesus says, follow me, what exactly does he mean? Yes, Chris. It's like pursuing. Pursuing means like learning as you follow. Okay, so you learn from him, right? Mm -hmm. And what are some lessons that he wants us to learn? Obviously, right, you have love your enemies, lay down your life for your friends, the importance of forgiveness, but what else is he teaching? Deny yourself. Deny yourself, right? The new covenant. The new covenant. What about himself? That he is God. That he is God, right? Mm -hmm. So you can say, I'm a follower, mm -hmm. right? A follower means you embrace his teaching about not only what you do, but also his teaching about who he is, okay? So that's the number one problem, at least in my opinion, with that thought, is if you want to be a follower of Jesus, well, if he says he's divine, then you need to believe that, right? To, to reject that is to, and, and to reject his teaching is to reject him. Okay, so we're gonna look at some of these passages and look at what does Jesus say about himself? Okay, so the primary focus, this is on page five, of Jesus' teaching was himself. Repeatedly, Jesus <coughs> claimed to be the son of God, one with the Father, and even accepted worship as God. Jesus knew that in order for people to understand God and know how to have a relationship with him, they had to first come to terms with who Jesus was. In Matthew 16, 15, after initiating a discussion about who people were saying that he was, Jesus pointedly asked the disciples, but who do you say I am? Before we answer the questions ourselves, we need to look at what Jesus says about himself, okay? So we have Mark 14, 62 through 64. Jesus stood before his enemies. They asked him directly if he was the one sent by God to save Israel. Somebody want to read that for me? We got Mark 14, 62, 64. Right, Carson, do you need a handout? Chris, do you have another handout? Or are they all gone? They're all gone. They're all gone. They're all gone. Okay, sorry. I can't. Okay, go ahead. And Jesus said, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power 
and coming with the clouds of heavy of heaven. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Okay. Now, according to this passage, who does Jesus say he is? Son of Man, right? And, and when you look at... Um, and how did Jesus' interrogators respond to this declaration? What was that? Condemned him to death. Condemned him to death, right? What, what does he do specifically? Remember what they did? They kind of go all Hulk, right? They start tearing their clothes. Why, why were they tearing their clothes? It's a of great, like, grief or like disbelief. And, like, this I can't believe he's saying this, right? So turn with me to um, Daniel chapter 7. Yeah, Daniel... Um, not only you know, did he survive the lion's den and you have all those great stories about him, uh, he was a prophet. And one of the themes that you have is this idea of, remember how King Nebuchadnezzar had a vision and he saw the, the statue with the head of gold, chest of uh, silver, thighs of bronze, then I think feet of iron, and then feet of clay. Did I get that right? But, uh, and then there's a stone that comes, right, that is hurled at it and is broken at that point in time. And so he's always had this, I, there's always this sense of the end, right, the apocalypse, uh, the return. And he has a vision of this in Daniel chapter 7. And I'll just kind of read this to you, starting verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheel was burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousands times ten thousands uh, stood before him. The court sat in his judgment, and the books were opened. Then. I, I looked then because of the sound of the great words and the horn was speaking and as I looked the beast was killed and his body destroyed and given over to be burned with me. As for the rest of the beast their dominion was taken away and their lives were prolonged for a season of a time. So this is about you know the, the issue of, of judgment. I think this is the Lord you know casting judgment upon all these kings of the earth. And I saw the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all people's nations' language should serve, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so, Jesus is quoting from this passage, right? So. He, Kind of the idea is he, you know, Daniel looks in the heavens and you have basically God judging the nations. And then there's somebody else coming, kind of making a lateral movement to him, the ancient of days, one like the Son of Man. He had a human form to him. And he was given 
this power to rule. He, he was one pre-existent, right? And he lived in glory. So when he says that he is the son of man, he's saying this is who I am. I am this character in this passage of Daniel. What Daniel saw, he actually saw me. And so they tear their clothes because he has just claimed to be divine. Right? So that's the, uh, that's why that was a super big deal to them. Does that make sense? So this has, and this passage also has some Trinitarian implications, doesn't it? Because there's two, two persons, so to speak. Okay, any questions about that? So that is in Mark, right, where that happens. Then you have another one. Um, uh, one Sabbath day in Jerusalem, Jesus came across a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. When Jesus asked him, do you wish to get well, the man answered, of course he did. Jesus commanded him to pick up his pallet and walk, and miraculously the lame did so. When the authorities saw this man walking and carrying his pallet, they accused the man of doing work on the Sabbath. In order to get out of trouble, the healed man told them that Jesus had told them to do so. <coughs> Thus the authorities confronted Jesus for commanding someone to break the Sabbath law. So we we'll read that passage in Matthew 5, 17 through 18. Matthew 5, 17 through 18. Who's got that one? Eden, go ahead. No, you, Eden. Yeah, you go. <laughs> but he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So judging by the reaction of the Jews, who did they think Jesus was claiming to be? Son of God. Son of God, right? Now, son of God just meant for all sons and daughters of the of God, would that have been a big deal to them? <coughs> you said the son. The son of God, right? So he's he's assigning to himself a special place that the Jews consider to be blasphemous. Now, according to Jesus, why was it okay for him to violate the Sabbath? According to verse 17. What do you think, Noah? Well, if he's God, he instituted the Sabbath. So mm -hmm. He has authority over it. Yeah, he has authority over the day. And does God take a day off on the Sabbath? He did the first one, right? But his point is, God's always working on the Sabbath. God's always holding the universe together, right? So therefore, it makes sense for me to do it too. Right, so, and it's interesting in John, you have like little clues here and there. And then, as we're going to see later on, Thomas just says it outright. But before we get there, we're going to look at another one. Uh, at an important feast in Jerusalem, a group of Jews gathered around Jesus, asking him to tell them plainly if he was the promised Messiah. Jesus gave them more than they bargained for when he said, I and the Father are one. Once again, who's he claiming to be? God. God, right? So this would be... Uh, I mean, the defining trait of Judaism that separated it from all other religions was they only believed in one God, 
Now, that was the teaching um, before the exile. They worshipped many gods. They were idol worshippers. But once they were kind of disciplined out of that, they were very fiercely monotheistic. And to say, I and the Father are, are one, I mean, that's the equivalent would be burning the Quran in modern-day Mecca, right? If you burn the Quran in Florida, you're in trouble. They'll find you, right? Mm-hmm. That is like the ultimate sacrilege. And so here he is at a, at a feast of the Jews, right? One of the religious high points of the year, and he says, I and the Father are one, right? So it's, it's quite a statement. Then you look at uh, who did others say Jesus is. Uh, the last living apostle writes an incredible description of Jesus. And really, this is, in my opinion, the most important Trinitarian verse that we have. Like, if you want the absolute proof that Jesus is divine, and yet at the same time is distinct from his Father, this is where we go to. So, John uh, 1, verses 1 through 3. Who would like to read that one for me? You got that? John 1, 1 through 3. I think he got it. So what does in the beginning remind you of? Genesis, Genesis, right? So in the beginning, that is when all things were created, right? Before the beginning, who was there? God. God alone. No other created being was there. There weren't two beginnings. There was one beginning. And so he says, in the beginning was the word. Right? So, not that the word was made in the beginning, but he was in the beginning. And and later on, we're going to see how he participated in the creative act. But who's the word? If you look at verse 14, who does that indicate? Does anyone want to read that passage out loud? John 1, 14, what does that say? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full yep. of grace and truth. Yeah. So any honest contextual read, reading is the word is Jesus, right? This word became flesh. So um, now here's a Greek note. Although the meaning of ain was and againito rendered came into being often overlap, side by side they present a significant contrast. N refers to existence while Agenito signals coming into existence. So in light of the previous information, what does John's use of the verb "n" in the following verse indicate about the nature of the word in verses one through two? So in the beginning was in, right? Which means was, was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in, in the beginning with God. Then later on it says, all things Agenito came into being. Right, what's significance about his use of the word aim? What does that suggest? He was not created. He was not created, right? He was there. So 
in the beginning, the Word was there with God the Father. Not in the beginning, He became that He was, right? So what would be the ramifications of John using Agenito in this subject? If you ever say, in the beginning, um, what um, came into being the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was uh, came into existence God, He came into existence in the beginning with God. The first creation, the first created being. He'd be the first created being, right? And that's what, let's say, a Jehovah Witness would teach, that He is the first created being. He's the firstborn of all creation. Uh, but the but the grammar strongly suggests otherwise, and we'll get into the Trinity a little bit later on. But there's actually two different words for for God here, with some slight nuances. So when it says in the beginning um, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, they make a point of saying that there's a slight variation in the second use of God in verse one. And so they say, and the word was with God, and the word was a God. Right? That's how they kind of get around it. <coughs> but it would be better to translate, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was, I would say, divine. Because that word God speaks of more like godness, divinity, right? Because you've got to keep in mind, with the doctrine of the Trinity, right, you have the, you have the Father and you have the Son. Both are God, but both are distinct from each other. And so he's making it clear that there are two separate personalities here. They're not to be confused. That, that term with, he was God and he was with God. Yeah, they're, they're inextricably linked. Um, and so this type of logic that we see here uh, will help us to understand the Trinity later on because you kind of bring in the Holy Spirit with this. So what does the fact that Jesus existed before the beginning teach us about his nature? He wasn't created. Yeah, he wasn't created. He is the uncreated one. Right? And, and, and isn't that kind of one of the base definitions of God? Like if you believe in God, you believe that God was uncreated. Everything else was created, except for God. God is the only uncreated being. Therefore, if Jesus is uncreated, he would be divine, right? Very simple, very simple logic. Okay, any questions about this so far? Anybody struggling with the divinity of Christ right now? You want to come forward, maybe raise your hand. <laughs> All right. So um, here's another one. Paul, an apostle to the Greeks, records the factual account of Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. Somebody want to read that for me? 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. Andrew, you got this? For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as it were to one ultimately born, 
or untimely born, he appeared to me also. Okay. According to this passage, what happened to Jesus? What's the story? He died and rose again. He died, was buried, and then rose again. Now, how did Paul know that Christ rose from the dead? He saw him. Was that? He, he saw, saw him, him, right? Appeared to him. And then how else? In accordance with the scriptures. In accordance with the scriptures. And then what else? He appeared more than 500 others. Yeah, more than 500 others. So there were witnesses. He saw him. He saw the scriptures, right? So how does Christ's resurrection validate his claims about himself? He said he was going to rise from the dead. He said he was going to rise from the dead, right? He also claimed what about himself? That he is God. Why would God raise, some, raise a blasphemer from the dead? Does that make sense? One thing about the resurrection is it validates everything that he said about himself. God validates him by raising him from the dead. And the, the alternative is God's raising a liar from the dead so that we will be continually deceived. Right? And, and if that's the character of God, that's at odds with everything else that we read in the Bible. Does that make sense? So the resurrection is proof of who he is. And so then you get into um, next to John, John 1. Uh, one through three is the strongest argument for the divinity of Jesus Christ. This, in my opinion, is number two. Uh, news of Jesus' resurrection spread quickly among his loyal disciples. In their exuberance, they approached Thomas, who was despondent over the tragic departure of his master. In response to their claim that Jesus was alive, he stated, Someone want to read John 20, 20, 25? Brand, oh, go ahead. And Nathaniel, were you going to read it? Oh, cool. cool. Go ahead. Unless I shall see in his hands the imprints of the nails, and put my fingers into the place of the nails, and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. Okay, so what's Thomas's disposition here? Doubt. Doubt, right? Poor guy, doubting Thomas. <laughs> Name kind of stuck. Label. Label. Yeah. <laughs> Stereotype. <laughs> kind of makes me wonder when we meet Thomas in heaven. If oh, doubting Thomas. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> What's his name tag gonna say? <laughs> Thomas Delson. So, um, but then Jesus appears. Told Thomas to take his finger, place it in his hands and his side. Upon doing so. He says, my Lord, my God. Some, actually, uh, Cole, are you there? Why don't you read 20, 28, and 20, 29? My Lord and my God, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. Okay. So how did Thomas respond to the resurrected Jesus? Disbelief. To the resurrected Jesus? Oh, no. Believe, right? Yeah, and then what does he say? My God. Yeah, two words, right? My Lord and my God. What are the possible ways of understanding that? 
how he was, yeah. was going. Now, <clears throat> if you talk to a Jehovah Witness, they would just say he was cussing. <laughs> Basically, this is the ancient way of saying OMG, right? <laughs> <laughs> Would somebody, so what's, what's the problem with that argument? Doesn't fit the context. Okay. Yeah? Well, and also when those words are used other places in scripture, it doesn't mean that. Yeah, it'd be hard to find people, any example where that's taken place. Or they use OMG in scripture. That's it's not a real argument. Okay? Another argument would be, well, that's what Thomas says. That's what Thomas says. Doesn't necessarily make it true. That's just they're just recording what Thomas said. So what would you say to that? The other disciples are telling him that. They saw Jesus, mm -hmm. and he just hasn't seen him in person, so he doesn't, he's doubting him. Okay, he's doubting him. But then he says, my Lord, my God, right? And they'll push back and say, well, that's what Thomas said. Joe, what were we going to say? Well, he was actually very honest in his disbelief. Like, he stated that out loud. Mm -hmm. And so we can assume he'd be honest in his belief. Then. Okay. <clears throat> okay. Jesus kind of blesses him for acknowledging the truth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if he said, my Lord, my God, um, and he was wrong, what would he expect Jesus to do? Correct him. Yeah. Let's go to the end of uh, Revelation. Right? And Revelation was written by who? Written by John. Let's go to Revelation 22, 8 through 9. Revelation what? Uh, 22, 8 through 9. <coughs> Ryan, you want to get this? Oh, yeah. Marlon? Okay, Marlon actually volunteered, right? <laughs> and I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, mm -hmm. and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. Yeah. So, John clearly is in the mood to worship. And so he bows down before the angel. What does the angel say? Don't. Don't do that, You're right? In trouble. <laughs> so, would it make sense for Jesus to give a blessing to Thomas? You see what I'm saying? I mean, he blesses Thomas for getting it right and commends his belief. So that's why it's just a very clear statement. And so when people talk about Jesus' sanity, they don't read the Gospel of John or take it seriously. 
I mean, it's, it's very clear. In fact, that's something that's the overall theme, the unique contribution of, of John. All the other ones do point to his divinity, by the way. You can find it in every other gospel, but John seems to really specialize on it and really draw it out. So with that said, I mean, why is it difficult for some people to accept the divinity of Jesus Christ? Why is that kind of a hard concept? Why do some people struggle with that? Some people that I've talked to are just unsure if the Bible is true. Okay. So they just struggle with believing that's true. Okay. It's like, how can you trust this? So there's a larger issue where if you don't really believe in the authority of Scripture, um, it's very difficult to find someone who believes that Jesus is God, although it is possible, I I suppose, but then denies the authority of Scripture. But yeah, that might be one, is they just don't believe the testimony. Well, and then if if he is divine, then you have to obey his word. Mm-hmm. You know, and so it's easier to not acknowledge his divinity because they don't want to live that way. Yeah. Yeah. If he's divine, you have to acknowledge his word. Right? Other thoughts on why it's difficult for some people to accept? He hasn't been revealed to them. Yeah. The Holy Spirit hasn't revealed to them. Holy Spirit hasn't worked in their heart. Yeah. Very true. Then it happened a long time ago, and they didn't witness all that. Yeah, it happened a long time ago. They didn't. They didn't see it. Yeah. Other thoughts? Lots of the old pagan religions. I mean, Greek, Roman, Norse, Persian, Babylonian. All of them had myths that involved a god either take impersonating man, taking body of man, or uh-huh. mating with a human woman in order to produce like this half, you know, mm-hmm. bastard god. Um, and so part of it is that it just seems too much like that. Mm-hmm. Like, those stories are weird, and we all know they're weird, and wonky, and mm-hmm. fanciful, and we have them in that category appropriately. So yeah. the idea that, oh, but now we're saying the real god actually did something like that. Yeah is just, it's difficult for somebody who's um, maybe has a background in that kind of education or even mm-hmm. in that part of the world, just understanding, um, yeah. Like, seems superstitious. It seems superstitious, it's weird. Um, mm-hmm. It's either hard to grasp or just silly. Mm-hmm. But. Yeah. Uh, I think they're a lot like Thomas, where they have to see physical proof or hear God say, "Hey, I'm I'm God. Mm-hmm. You know, follow me." Mm-hmm. They're they're looking. They're not they're not believing until they actually see undeniable proof. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in their defense, you know, if we're looking for Christ's return, it also has warnings of like, "Don't believe everyone who says I am it and mm-hmm. I'm this," because. Mm-hmm. You should be questioning it to a degree. Yeah, somebody has a Jewish background, you can. I mean, mean, it does make sense. You shouldn't just naturally believe it unless there is something that makes, you know, an alignment Mm -hmm. with what God has said. Yeah. Yeah, why is it important that we, um, that you believe in the divinity of Jesus Christ? Why is this a defining issue for the Christian? If. He's not divine. 
nothing he says has any kind of real true backing power and it's all irrelevant. Okay. Now what are the other implications of him not being divine? It means you don't believe God says who he says he is. Yeah. That's a big deal. Yeah, <laughs> it, it means you have to reject certain parts of the Bible, at least, right? Yeah. And it would mean that God is a liar because remember when Dove descends and he's like, this is my beloved son. Mm-hmm. That would mean that God is a liar and that yeah. God is imperfect and all the ramifications of that. Yeah. Other reasons why it's important that you believe it? He's the mediator. So like if you don't believe in Jesus, then you're separated from God mm-hmm. forever. Yep. Him being divine allows for a mediatorial ministry, mm-hmm. right, where you can represent God to the people. Also, your sins are not atoned for. Mm-hmm. I mean, at best, even if he was a perfect man, mm-hmm. he could atone then, he could take on the take the place of one sinful man yep. only. Mm-hmm. If he's only like the best man who's perfect, yeah. uh-huh. he has to be of infinite value, mm-hmm. God Himself, in order to cover all of our sins. Okay. Yeah, and there's another element to that too, where if he was just a perfect man, um, God punishing a man for the sins of another is different from God punishing Himself. Mm-hmm. I know he has some Trinitarian nuancing there, but. You know what I'm saying? Like he, he was a voluntary sacrifice who was there when the whole plan was being put together. Mm-hmm. Okay, what are some other reasons why you need to believe in the deity of Christ? Because I think sometimes, and the reason why I bring this up, sometimes it's like, well, to witness to Jehovah's Witnesses, we need to make sure that they know that he's divine. Right? But there is more to it than that. Right? There's more implications to that uh, as far as just our Christian practice and belief. But some other reasons why it's important to believe that Jesus is divine. Yeah. They didn't take his life, he willingly gave his life. Yeah, he laid it down. Right. And he had the power to take it up, right? Because he had divine yes. power. Okay. Other thoughts? Implications of believing the divinity of Christ? We have hope for the future. Mm-hmm. Okay, you want to build on that a little bit? I mean, after we die, there's we have hope that we are going to live with God mm-hmm. forever. There'll be no more tears, no more sadness. Yeah. His promises are valid. Mm-hmm. Just as much as his statement that he would raise from the dead. Yep. It makes me think of the Catholic Church and maybe like all the different saints that they pray to, like they attribute divinity mm-hmm. to others more than to like the true divine. Yeah. Yeah, and that's kind of an interesting point. Like when people talk about how they pray to Mary, but they don't worship her. Right. Well, when you think about it, when you pray to Mary, you're allowing for the reality of 100,000 people simultaneously praying to Mary in 100 different languages, and she can process all of that information at once and do something about it. Right? So maybe they don't believe in her as far as having absolute divinity, like the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but 
it would be divinity in the ancient sense of the word, right? Where they believed in limited gods with limited power, and they do definitely ascribe that kind of power to her. And so, um, I mean, when we sing songs, we sing songs to, right, to God the Father, but how often do we worship Jesus in our songs? If Jesus is not divine, then this is an idolatrous uh, religion. Right? If the Jews are right and Jesus is not divine, then I mean, we are committing you know, blasphemy against the one true God. Right? So that's a very, very big deal. Somebody, no, we're going to add anything. Okay. Other thoughts on this? Yeah, Jared. Basically, <coughs> praying to anything or anyone except... Okay. So if you pray to anything besides God, yeah. it's wrong. Yes. That some people do not understand that. Yeah. Now, if I were to, I mean, praying is, it assumes, right, that that person can hear you and do something about it. So if you pray to a, a relative, right, you're assuming that this dead relative can hear you. Praying to something he's worshiping it. Yeah, well... Yeah, I would say so, because you are attributing certain certain attributes to that person that <clears throat> are subdivine, and so that's the thing. Like when a Roman Catholic says we don't worship the saints, it's like the idea is we don't take God off the pedestal and put a saint on the pedestal, and that is true. But I think it's more like they have God on the pedestal and they'll add some little saints too to the but worship pedestal. Because I believe I've witnessed less in the Catholic setting. Mm-hmm. Let's pray to Saint so and so. And then I've seen firsthand, I've seen it. Yeah. We're praying to Mary this month. Yeah. I would say that's an act of blasphemy. That, that is attributing um, divine attributes to Mary. And. They may not worship Mary in place of God, but the, the first commandment is you're not, you're not to worship anything in addition to God. Then when I witnessed that, yeah. for praying to Mary, yeah. I know. It was. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> Inside me. I, I admit, I get the willies too, but you know, they're misled. <laughs> but that's the important thing about having a high view of Jesus, is your, your view of Jesus as a soul, well, as the sole object of your worship, I mean, God, Father, Holy Spirit, work with me there. We'll let uh, Scott explain the Trinity next week. Um, but that's the, uh, yeah, so I mean, having a high view of Jesus and worshiping Jesus and praying to Jesus and praying in Jesus' name, all of that only makes sense if Jesus is divine. Mm-hmm. That makes sense? Yeah. Uh, we would still be under the Old Covenant, too, probably. If Jesus would be God, right? Because he wouldn't have mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. His atonement would mean nothing. Yeah. Just one man dying. We would be living wrong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Jesus being divine, now, do you have to bring it up right away? Well, they're Jehovah Witness, yes. But sometimes it just takes a little while for people to kind of put all those pieces together. But when Jesus is presented as divine, they'll say, okay, <clears throat> maybe it doesn't quite make sense, but I'll believe it. But if you're praying to Jesus and you're singing to Jesus, right? You are affirming his deity when you do that. 
and you're affirming that God's okay with you doing that, right? So a lot of times people believe in you know believe in that, they just may not express it, or they have all the kinks worked out. Okay, so we'll go ahead and pause here. Uh, let me pray, and I'll let you be dismissed. Well, Father, I do thank you for uh, these brothers and sisters, and I pray that you'll give us all a high view of Jesus. And as we sing to him, learn about him, that our hearts will be filled with wonder at um, Jesus, uh, the divine Son of God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.